family approached the RFDS for support for their child. What they were finding over a number of nights in the morning when they were waking their child up, that they had clumps of hair in their hands. So during the night, they were rubbing their head and they were actually pulling out clumps of hair. So while the family were feeling metaphorically that they were tearing their hair out because of the stresses, the child literally was. Is the centre in all stations of the child area, slot up to 4358 My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. The Royal Flying Doctor Service is well known for emergency medical retrievals when there's been an accident, an injury or a medical crisis. We also provide primary health services so people that live in locations that don't have access to a local GP or hospital can see the doctor, nurse, dentist or mental health practitioner. In this episode, I'm talking to Vanessa Latham and Leslie Harvey who are two mental health professionals that are based at the RFDS Broken Hill Wellbeing Place in New South Wales. Because both of these health professionals work in a small community where people talk and patient privacy is important, the stories we talk of have had the names and details of the persons involved changed so they're not easily identifiable. Further, the subject of suicide and mental illness is discussed in this interview. If you or someone you care about is having mental health troubles or if you find this interview distressing, I encourage you to reach out and get assistance either through the RFDS if you live in rural and remote Australia or to Lifeline on 131114. Hello to you both, Vanessa and Leslie. Hi, Lana. Hi. Just to start, would you each tell me how you came to work in the mental health space and what drew you to it? Maybe we start with Vanessa. Yes, so I studied nursing, so I became a registered nurse and through that we do some placements in mental health. Um, So I spent time as a student in mental health inpatient setting and I just found, I knew that nursing would sort of take me off in, in a sort of a direction, but when I found mental health nursing, which didn't really even know that was a whole um, career pathway, that definitely felt right. I think I've always probably been drawn to, or been sensitive, I guess, to mental health and understanding mental health and wellbeing and drawn sort of in a compassionate way to people and and just being empathetic towards them so yeah so I sort of came a registered nurse but have always worked in the mental health field um, first at the Alfred inpatient unit and now for the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Broken Hill where I, I've been for the past 10 and a half years. Was the move to Broken Hill for you Vanessa was it a, a bit of a culture shock? It was well it was um, although I had come to Broken Hill as a third year nursing student part of a, a program between my university and Broken Hill and the UDRH here. And so 
that exposed me to the Broken Hill community, the Outback, and a little bit to the RFDS as well. And I had a really great um, time on my placement here, felt really connected to the community, even though it was a short six weeks, I think. Just loved the land, loved the people, um, loved the experience we had with the RFGS and never imagined I'd come back, um, let alone work for the RFGS, but I sort of just kept in touch and it just kind of things fell into place. And so when I moved here in 2012, yeah, it was a big change to actually come and live here and sort of experience um, Broken Hill life sort of as a living local. But yeah, it's been really special I think I, I really I really like everything about living in Broken Hill. Have you now been accepted as part of the Broken Hill community or is it similar to my local rural district where you really have to be a third or fourth generation oh. uh, inhabitant to be considered to be a local? Yes no, I'll never be an A grader they call it. <laughs> um, I have a local partner but no I'm very much from away and I'll always be from away. But I think Broken Hill community, there's a great mix of born and bred locals, a a real history and love for the community and the lifestyle here. And then there's an amazing mix of people from away who come and sometimes they go, but this constant kind of diversity, I suppose, amongst um, all people living and working and travelling here. So it keeps it very interesting. All right. Well, what about you, Leslie? How did you come to work in the mental health space and what drew you to it? I'm a newer clinician um, in the mental, as a mental health clinician. I think I've always um, in some capacity worked in social emotional wellbeing. My primary discipline um, was or is as an early childhood teacher. And when I was working in special education and working, uh, supporting children under the age of five with developmental delays and disabilities, but also supporting their families, really identified the gap in mental health support for that age. And there just didn't seem to be opportunities to build my skills in that mental health capacity. So I did quite a bit of research and came across um, some information about a soon-to-be master's course coming to Australia and went on the wait list and in 2014 it was released. So that was the Master's of Child Play Therapy at Deakin. So I applied and was very lucky to get into that master's and after five years completed my studies. So as a newly qualified and registered play therapist, it was, okay, where do I go now? I had an incredible job here in Broken Hill, but wanted to use that training and all those skills that I had gained. At the same time, the RFDS had identified that children and families were that gap in service and had um, identified some new roles. At that stage, they weren't looking for a play therapist, but then through just spending some time and thinking about it, play therapy is such an emerging field in Australia that I realised that people don't know about it. So connected with Vanessa, did some advocacy talking about what play therapy is, what I can do as a play therapist, the incredible skills that we have, and here I am. So, <laughs> Oh, wow. So you essentially created your role there by gaining Vanessa's agreement. That's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And it's just been an incredible partnership and relationship for the last three years. And it's, it's still new um, and we've got incredible opportunities ahead of us as well. And I think a big part of it for me is that I'm a local, so I am a, a Broken Hill girl. 
and I wanted to stay. I had gained this qualification, but I didn't want to leave with the qualification because I could see so many gaps for mental health support for children in not only Broken Hill, but the area. And that was the reason I went for went and did the training is because I wanted to increase those unique and those specialised fields that we've got here in Broken Hill. So then to be able to have a job in Broken Hill to stay in my community, but then to work for the RFDS, I mean, it was just every job I've loved. I have just really valued everything that I've had in my career, but I think everything was leading to this. Oh, that's fantastic. So could you explain what play therapy is and how it works? I think we know therapy. We know we know the word therapy because we hear it in different capacities, not only just in mental health, but we might do occupational therapy or speech therapy. So the word therapy makes sense. But when we hear the word play with therapy, I think that's where people go, what is this? Play therapy acknowledges that children have a different language. So in their development, they are still developing emotional literacy, the understanding of the world, they're developing their way to be able to express themselves. And the way that children do it age appropriately is through play. As adults, we can talk to people. Sometimes I'm not very good at it doing it myself sometimes. (laughs) And particularly when I'm feeling overwhelmed, to try to seek those words is really, really challenging. So then for children, when they're feeling overwhelmed, Um, and they've got a lot of things going on when they don't already have those words then to be able to come to a space that is age appropriate and is safe and we use the language of the child which is play. Could you give me an example so let's say there was a child that had had a major loss in a of a family member or something how would you use play therapy to then help them communicate and get over that loss? So the importance of the play in therapy is that it is age appropriate and it's the child's language. So it's children coming in and being able to show and tell through play. A critical part of play therapy is the setup and it are the toys that are in the room. But what it also is, is the relationship between the therapist and the child. So to give, just to give you an example, it's very hard to give a concrete example because it's different for every single child. Um, just like as for adults, our feelings, how we hold our emotions, where we hold them in our body, because it's just not our mind. It is our body that's holding on to those stresses and those sorts of things as well. So in the space of play therapy, children play it out so they can use their whole body to express and show us potentially what's going on. Not always can we tell what's going on, but they use the play to express that. So, for example, there might be a scenario a child is feeling overwhelmed by something that's happened at school and they can feel that in their body as if they were being attacked or powerless. So to come into the play therapy room and to gain control of those feelings, they can be powerful. So they might be powerful in the way that they're going to be the police officer and I'm the baddie, so they can get control over me. They might become the the hunter and they're hunting for the monsters and I'm the monster. So my role is as the monster is, you know, to provide that safe space for them to express I'm scared, I'm worried, but as the hunter they can get control over those feelings. So it's very important and that's why that relationship is extremely important in that therapeutic space because the children are using me, are utilising me as part of their role, as part of their play for them to express all their worries and fears. And it also provides distance because some of the things that are going on for children are extremely overwhelming. 
So for us to address them head on can actually excavate the situation for the child. But by being able to place it into play, it provides some distance to be able to explore what's going on for them. What sort of issues are, are children struggling with that they're coming to you for assistance with? With my role, the diversity is that um, I work in a number of communities. Most of the communities are small. Some are smaller than others. Some of the children live in the communities, whereas some children are living on properties. So the diversity of the children's needs, and I also want to acknowledge that it's actually about families as well. So we can't support a child without actually acknowledging and supporting parents too. And I thought by doing this work, it would be about the being children, but I have gone into adult work as well and support. So over the last three years that I've been here, you know, one of the first things was a lot of children were gaining that fear, that sense of feeling and stress from their families because of the drought. Families are out feeding stock. One member of the family might have to leave the property to get a second job to have that finance come in to buy all the feed. They'd be going out and stock were dying. And the children are part of the business because running a station is a business. It's the whole lifestyle. Um, they're also still continuing with their education. There was so many stresses going on that the children were feeling anxious and overwhelmed and they didn't know how to express that. They didn't know how to say... I can feel what's happening for my parents. I'm feeling worried. Where do I put that? One example um, is a family approached the RFDS for support for their child. Um, What they were finding over a number of nights in the morning when they were waking their child up, that they had clumps of hair in their hands. So during the night, they were rubbing their head and they were actually pulling out clumps of hair. So while the family were feeling in metaphorically that they were tearing their hair out because of the stresses, the child literally was tearing their hair out because everyone was so stressed in the family. Um, other things are intergenerational trauma, families affected by grief and loss, children affected by um, sudden changes in the family, whether that's moving, moving back after leaving from the drought, they might have had to leave to go to another state, then they're having to return again and the dynamics of the changes in those transitions. I might also support children with developmental delays and disabilities. So that it, it's quite diverse and as a play therapist, I'm integrative. I have a different ways of being able to um, provide support for children and families. Mm. So with that little girl that was pulling her hair out with the anxiety of what was going on with her family, with the drought, was she able to overcome that through play therapy? Yes, Yes, so through a series of, um, we had eight sessions and the family that I worked with, they were my first family after graduating. (laughs) And we noticed after um, about halfway, about four or five sessions, the parents, when they woke her up, there were no more clumps of hair in her bed. That's fabulous. So she's... She's obviously come to terms or been able to handle it. And, of course, since then we've had quite some rain, which is fabulous, but the drought was was horrific in many ways. Well, thanks for explaining what play therapy is, Leslie. Could we flip back to you, Vanessa? Would you mind telling me a little bit about what your day-to-day is like there at the wellness place in Broken Hill? Are you always there on site or are you travelling a lot as well? Yeah, so I am based primarily here on site nowadays. I used to fly out to up to about nine of our remote clinic locations on a regular roster. Um, But now I'm in more of the administrative management role, so I am here a lot. However, we have also opened two other wellbeing places. So one is in Dubbo and one is in Lightning Ridge, a little mini one. And so I travelled to those locations as well. We've sort of set those up over the last 
well, two years really in the midst of everything COVID (laughs) and grown our team quite a lot. So we've got a mix of mental health, alcohol and other drug employees based at each of those locations and also outreaching to probably about 12 locations all around outside of Dubbo but right up to the northwest um, and the Queensland border and central inland New South Wales. Well, that's great. What are the key issues regarding mental health when it comes to living in rural and remote Australia? Well, I think oh, it's so hard because I think it's just the same issues as everywhere else. But I, but I mean, there's isolation. The isolation is a huge impact on the mental health. Is it the geographical isolation? I, I think so. Yeah, you know, like you, like you said, that there is same as everywhere else and there are different things like when we've got financial related to drought you know and it's even tricky at the moment because it is so green there's a still a hold on being able to complete work for a lot of families because it's so wet and it's not drying out so everyone thinks oh it's green everything's sold but this is this is a long-term solution to a huge drought yeah well this podcast series has been all about resilience and and courageous people and i've interviewed many of them that just literally blow my socks off with with what they persevere with and what they tackle but it has been really clear in doing this series over time that there's still an issue with people not asking for help when they need it could we talk about that stoic she'll be right attitude that's particularly common with Aussie men but also women when it comes to challenges they face in the bush yeah I think those I've always heard since um, I've lived and worked out here that yeah even with physical health not just mental health you know the men in particular be the absolute last minute before they came in to see the doctor or, or potentially even needed a retrieval but I think over the last few years there's been a huge like we've put so much effort and energy into mental health awareness and I think to do that effectively with all of us have worked so hard building really good relationships with people just face-to-face relationships with everyone we can when we're out at the clinic we've got our appointments but if we're not seeing people one-on-one or families or children we're building really good rapport with everyone we can so that if they, well, if we recognise that they might need some extra support or if they feel like they need more support down the track, it's easy for them to reach out to us. We've got a good mix of, I guess, ages and gender in our team, locals, people from away. So there's kind of, you know, we try and match people up as much as we can um, with similarities or, or people's preferences. But, yeah, I think that trust and the relationship, Mm. yeah. And we're so lucky because we can not just deliver our clinical services, but we've got all these butchering days going on and small motors workshops. So that brings all these different people in, young, old, men, women. Everyone's really interested in this stuff because it's so relatable to them and their lifestyle, I suppose, and we can just gently wrap around mental health information support again further our relationships and so yeah I think we kind of like to think we become extended members of the community in a way Um, and that's definitely that to keep emphasizing and keep maintaining those relationships. Do you think that we're slowly making progress in getting people to understand that it's not weakness to ask for help or just to seek someone to speak to when things seem really dark or or particularly hopeless? I think so, and I think we've, another one of our programs, we've identified some key pastoralists um, typically living on the land, so on properties 
all around um, Broken Hill in the far west. And they've been carefully selected and endorsed and given some training to be peer advocates, I guess, for mental health and wellbeing. So it's another level for people who may not want to reach out to a service as such, but they can reach out to like a well-known, highly regarded, trusted person who lives the same life as they do essentially, who has also lived through their own mental health issue, whether it be depression, suicide, anxiety, family breakdowns, succession planning challenges in business, And they've spoken publicly about it and through the program they continue to be endorsed and speak publicly, I suppose. So it really breaks down another barrier for people to be able to reach out and connect with someone and they can help link them into more services. They can provide really good support themselves as a peer who has lived lived expertise and lived experience with mental ill health. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Sadly, suicide can be a real challenge in rural and remote Australia. Just where I live in regional New South Wales, um, we had a local bloke who contracted cancer and he decided that he didn't want to go through the long treatment program. Mm -hmm. So he took matters into his own hands in his private shed only to have his daughter discover his body sometime later when she'd been unable to reach him and had grown concerned. Is this a story that you're well familiar with there in, in remote Australia? We've definitely come really close a number of times and, and we have certainly people have um, engaged in our service or been encouraged to engage because with family members, which we welcome to all engage, um, with quite strong suicidal ideation and the big risk in some of our cohort, I guess, is the access to Uh, firearms things like that so that increases um, the risk I suppose so that is an element sometimes we need to help minimize I guess the risk too there are certain things that households can do in terms of limiting access and things for a period of time and that's really just one narrow scenario I guess yeah, I mean, I think everything that we do within the RFDS in terms of the mental health and mental well-being space is really around, obviously, improving uh, suicide rates and making sure that people get the help they need. There was some research done by the RFDS a couple of years ago, and that research found that the prevalence of suicide was not higher in the bush or even in remote Australia, but the access to health was less than that of metro areas, which meant that people either weren't seeking the assistance or didn't have access to that assistance. And so the outcomes were worse per the research Mm -hmm. in rural and remote Australia, simply because the assistance or help wasn't there. And so that's why I'm really, really so happy that we have places like the the wellbeing place there in Broken Hill and now one in Dubbo and a small one in, in Lightning Ridge because it actually makes that service and that help available either directly or through, as you say, peers uh, in their local, you know, their neighbour or the guy down the road or whatever. It becomes a support network that is very common and accessible in the city areas, but hasn't been in rural and remote areas. So it's a touchy subject to talk about. And I realise particularly when we're talking about small communities like Broken Hill or Lightning Ridge or, or even Dubbo, a much larger regional city, but people know people and, and it's a tough subject to talk about. 
So I'm glad that you and the team are, are making great inroads just in making that communication and that help available and to prevent worse outcomes. That's thank you from me. <laughs> uh, do you find any aspect of your job, Vanessa, challenging? Well, at the moment, I find that volume of emails extremely challenging. <laughs> so much so. But no, I think, I mean, at the moment, there's we've just gone into a new financial year so there's funding comes funding goes so that's there's a lot of chat of difficulty sustaining we, we will never stop a service that we've started but the funding for it may change and so that's there's a lot of work behind the scenes on continuing funding that we need and we're really like we've grown so much and we're trying to keep growing I guess we we want to make sure that there's mental health support alcohol and other drug support and particularly also now child and family support at every single outreach clinic that we that the RFGS delivers primary health care to. So wherever there's a doctor, there's mental health and alcohol and other drug as well. And I think yeah. um, particularly uh, our big emphasis on child and family is huge in terms of how we can, I mean, that's how we're going to hopefully address and combat suicide, mental illness, severity developing because so much... There is so much trauma underlying these things, I guess. Now, Vanessa, I've known you for many years. And from the first time we met, I was struck at how calm and warm and friendly you are. And you almost have like a Zen quality about you. You're really approachable and you seem almost unflusterable. (laughs) Is that true? Do you ever have patients or circumstances that you have to deal with that actually get you flustered? Oh, I think, I mean, internally, I think yes, but I'm. I think my my automatic is always to sort of stop and observe and listen and understand. Be curious. I'm very accepting, so I think that probably disposition helps in terms of tackling challenges and making kind of difficult decisions or weighing up options. I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. No, that makes sense to me. And Leslie, what do you love about working with children and helping them through therapy? So much. We don't have time in this podcast. (laughs) Enlighten me. It's a privilege Mm. to be invited in, even though I'm setting the space and providing the resources, but I am invited into their world and I am given these little gifts of who they are, but also what might be going on. And that that's just, that is significant. And that's why that relationship is just so critical. And it's, it's the honesty that comes out. We have, you know, it is therapy. It can be really tricky and challenging at times. But overall, I finish nearly every session having had fun. And, you know, with that aim of ending on fun as well. Because if we're not having fun, we're also not learning. We're not healing. We're not problem solving. Um, and even as adults, we need that fun and we need to be playful, you know. And I know that I, I sometimes go to very big attempts to bring the fun in. I'm often dressed in different costumes. I can be dinosaurs. <laughs> I can be lots of other things. I can do it without the costumes, but I do like to um, bring some extra tote bags with me on the plane at times. And it's always quite interesting when we're loading the plane and people are curious about the puppet head that's hanging out the bag and what I might we might be doing today. And I've always got one fond memory. Um, when I first started in the role and I was setting up the play therapy rooms across the communities, 
And I turned around to see one of the pilots with one of the dollhouses walking across the tarmac. And and I think that's a missing scene from Top Gun, that one. (laughs) But but it is, it's, it's what they give. And they give so much and they work so hard in these therapy sessions. And with that relationship that we build, oh, I, everyone's got great jobs. Everyone might think they've got good jobs, but become a play therapist. It's the best. It is the absolute best job. And also to be able to provide such a specialised field across the far west where most families in the past, they would have had to driven to Adelaide. They might have had to drive to Sydney. So for a family member, you know, on a station, they would have had to take in the other children, they would have had to leave for a week to go for an hour appointment. Yet we're going to them, and like Vanessa said earlier, you know, the services that we're taking out should not be underestimated. It's just, it's, it's absolutely incredible. That's fabulous. Well, kids can be so frank and honest and straight. Does that make your job easier or harder as a play therapist? <laughs> I've been called lame before in my attempts to provide some magical tricks. The child was extremely patient with me. I'd practiced for a week (laughs) and presented these magic tricks and they were so patient and watched me and then just reminded me afterwards going, no, they were pretty lame, Leslie. But But I think it makes my job easier because I know where we're at. I know where the relationship's at and, you know, for them to feel that they could tell me that uh, maybe that needs a little bit of work, I, I, I think that's, yeah, I think it's great. It's priceless, isn't it? Yeah. Now, what has been your funniest or lightest moment when working with kids? Oh, I have so many every day. Every, every day that I just walk out of a session and going, oh, I just got so much out of that. Um, the, the, um, yeah. the car. The one that Vanessa's alluding to is, it was during drought, so just to give the context of there was a lot of dry dirt, mm. <laughs> not green like it is now, and the young child was arriving to one of our bush clinics for their um, first play therapy session. So I came out of the clinic to greet the family and there's a bit of grass area and a fence um, a bit, oh, probably 20 feet away and mum was pulling the four-wheel drive up to the fence and as the car was slowing, not yet stopped, still in motion, the back driver's door opened and the car's still moving and I'm like, okay, what's happening here? And I just saw this set of small boots hit the dust and there was just this woof, a little bull dust and the child, as they stepped out of the car and then the car stopped, came through towards the gate and just proudly announced, I'm here, Leslie, I'm ready for play therapy. And it's those moments that, you you know, the child's ready. They know what they need. And we underestimate children so often. And I think we need to have age appropriate but higher expectations. But he, the child knew he needed this. His family described that him as extremely shy and here he was just arriving very, very proudly going, I'm ready, I need this. Oh, that's fantastic. That's just brilliant. Well, thanks so much to both of you for talking to me in this podcast and sharing your day-to-day and also giving us a little bit of insight. We across the whole RFDS family really appreciate the work you're doing and I know that your community loves you and all you're doing. So thank you so much. Thanks, Lana. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Hi, my name's Amy and I live urban in New South Wales. I love the Flying Doctor podcast. What I love about the podcast is Lana, the way she presents it, she's got such a good sense of humour. She asks good questions and I love the fact that you interview the very people that it happened to or their immediate family. I also love the other ones where you get a pilot or a nurse to talk about what they do and how they've enjoyed or how they find working for the flying doctor. And I love the fact that it's so remote so often, so difficult. People wait so many hours, and yet still there are so many successes. And that's a a wonderful thing you do to our country, which is so vast. Thank you, Flying Doctor. Thank you, Lana. Very good podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.